the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. At 36 years old, most physicians are just getting up to serious full speed in their medical careers, carving out a niche, perhaps making a name for themselves, and doing what they are passionate about, what they train so hard for, healing patients and making their physical lives better. But at the age of 36, Yale and Stanford University graduate and trained neurosurgeon Dr. Paul Kalanithi His focus in life suddenly shifted from a focus of building a career and building a family to questions about his own mortality, having been diagnosed, unexpectedly so, with lung cancer, stage four lung cancer. Through the process of dealing with this, many questions were raised. One of the issues that Paul has left as a gift for not only his own family, but frankly for all of us, that at one time or another, at some point in life, we'll face questions of our own mortality, is a gift left behind of his experiences, his observations, his feelings, detailed in a new book called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. Joining me now is Dr. Kalanithi's wife, Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, who, by the way, is a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford School of Medicine. And Dr. Lucy, great to have you on the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You know, your story reads like one of those amazing love affairs. The two of you, I believe, met uh, when you were first-year medical students back at Yale University, and you followed your lives and careers and marriage to uh, wind up here on the West Coast and finishing up your studies at Stanford University. And by all accounts, this was sort of, um, well, what do we call it, a a fairy book kind of a relationship, wasn't it? Um. Yeah, in my mind, um, uh, I feel so lucky to have been married to Paul. And it's it's funny because you described that sequence of events. And I look back and, you know, a year ago, three years ago, he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and he was 36. Two years ago, we were having our baby shower. A year ago, he had just died. And now his book is out and it's being translated into almost 40 languages. And it's just like the course of things that you just never know what's going to happen in your life. And so looking back over those years, you know, meeting him 13 years ago and then up until now when he's not with us, but he's written this book and we have a daughter growing, it's, um, it's really, um, you know, it's life. This book, let's talk about some of his motivations. First off, for the benefit of listeners, put some things in perspective for us. So as we mentioned, um, he had wrapped up his studies at Stanford University um, and was beginning, literally beginning his career as a neurosurgeon. What led to the diagnosis of stage four lung cancer? 
So he was diagnosed in May of 2013, and starting around Christmas the year before, he'd started to develop some back pain that was kind of unexplained. And then in between Christmas and the spring of the next year, he started losing weight, um, you know, without really knowing why. And then he started to have night sweats and a cough. And it's funny because we were both doctors, so we were kind of worried about these symptoms. But at the same time, he was working as a um, neurosurgery resident, a chief resident at Stanford. And, you know, he was on his feet for 14 hours a day and doing brain surgery. And, you know, he would skip lunch or eat a Snickers bar for lunch. And so to have some of those aches and to lose a bit of weight when you're working that hard, initially it, we didn't we didn't realize what it was. And then finally um, we had the, the diagnosis that he had metastatic cancer and he probably only had a few years to live. And so at that point, the, the book he wrote and the um, task of that time was to try to make sense of, um, as, a, as a young doctor and as a lover of literature who had also studied philosophy, like how you put together all you know intellectually and philosophically about mortality, and then facing it in a real and emotional way, um, what do you do with that? And so he wrote this book as a way to make sense of it and to share it with readers. It's interesting because your experience, I think, tracks what most of us would think at that age. Well, this certainly can't be anything serious. I mean, maybe a right. little bit worn out, needs perhaps some some time off, uh, you know, maybe a little bit on the lethargic side because of working such long hours. I mean, this is the experience of every uh, physician, to be sure. And I think no one, even with the both of you, with backgrounds in medicine from very prestigious schools, I would imagine would have thought that this could have been anything more severe than just kind of feeling under the weather. Right. It's just so rare. Um, uh, Exactly. And then, you know, a a little while before the diagnosis, we started to um, suspect it. And that was when he, um, you know, uh, really started getting it checked out. And then soon the diagnosis came. Lucy, what was this like for you when the diagnosis came? You're both physicians, so you understand not only all of the terminology, but the ramifications of the terminology. And you're, you're suddenly, you, you have to have felt, at least in those initial moments, like, number one, this can't be happening. And number two, how is this possible? You guys are just getting your careers and, and lives together started. You haven't even begun to, to, to start your own family. And suddenly, this diagnosis, it's not just lung cancer, it's stage four lung right. cancer. What was your reaction right. like? Yeah, you're summing it up pretty well. Um, it's It was this really profound and painful moment where um, we had, we Paul got admitted to Stanford Hospital um, to get, you know, expedited workup and, and quick investigation of what was going on. And he went down to the CT scanner and then he was wheeled back into the hospital room. And no one was in the room. The two of us were in the room. And because he was a physician at Stanford, he went over to the computer and he typed his own name in and he pulled up the CAT scan images. And so he describes this at the beginning of the book, the feeling of looking through those pictures of, you know, somebody's organs and seeing cancer throughout the lungs and the bones and knowing it's your own body that you're looking at. And so he's standing there with me, his wife, um, and we just sort of, nobody was giving us the news in like a little kind, gentle dribble. It was like the two of us together looking at it with our own eyes and then being doctors we knew that this was a terminal illness so it just sort of hit us all hit us all at once um and then luckily i think we skipped over the phase of thinking 
why me? How could this happen? Um, you know, why us? Because we've seen it happen to so many people. This kind of thing happened to so many people. Um, you know, he was a brain surgeon, and so he was familiar with head trauma and aneurysms and tumors. And then the immediate thing we both thought was, you know, now it's our turn. It's our turn to enter into this um, this kind of challenging experience. And what a curiosity that I think we all tend to ask those sorts of questions, uh, having dealt with this uh, issue of uh, cancer myself in my own life. Uh, the initial question of why me, I think, is is very normal. It's very human. But then it maybe even begs a bigger question. Why not me? I mean, it happens. Uh, that's right. So, exactly. Paul wrote, exactly. Paul wrote that in the book and said, yeah, the answer would be why not me, you know? So once you get over the the initial shock was there did you go through feelings of anger that that sense of of this this young relationship you'd known each other uh, barely a decade at that point that that all of a sudden this the love of your life was going to be ripped from you i mean certainly the the seriousness of the fact that the cancer had metastasized, was already at stage four at the point of the diagnosis. I mean, you had to have known that the clock was going to be ticking very soon. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, that's right. We didn't feel particularly angry. I think for me, the main emotions I had were, um, you know, painful emotions like sadness and anxiety. Um, and then sort of the the real task we were really in love. We really knew how much we were going to need each other and wanted to take care of each other. And then, you know, we, we certainly had these, um, like real disorientation and a shift in his identity, you know, like you were describing, he, Paul, um, as a young neurosurgeon had this whole career mapped out in his mind about being a neurosurgeon and a scientist and maybe a writer down the line because he loved literature and writing. But suddenly with only a few years left, um, your whole identity just changes completely and you, you have to make sense of a whole new world and set of circumstances. And I think other people who are facing a serious or terminal illness can relate to that idea. Um, and so writing ultimately became the, the big purpose for him, the way for him to cope and the way for him to communicate and feel connected and uh, purposeful. And there are layers of complexity here because not only is there the sense of, okay, time is suddenly short, we thought we had our whole lives together. Suddenly, there's now a, an expiration date that we can see. So you have to contend with the implications of that on your relationship and outlook on life. And then you, you point out something I think that, that uh, perhaps few of us think about that physicians have to deal with, and that is that you might spend a career, a lifetime uh, caring for patients, and you're used to the physician patient relationship, uh, you are the one who's giving the the diagnosis or prescribing the treatment or in your husband Paul's case, uh, you know, performing the surgery on the patient and suddenly the roles have been significantly switched. He goes from being Dr. Paul the physician to patient Paul. And as much as I would imagine, some might say, well, gee, uh, all of the advantages because of his medical training and background, there's things that he will understand and be able to comprehend that, that the un, uh, uninitiated, uh, you know, average patient out there who's, who's, you know, spent no more time in the medical journals than, you know, occasionally happening on WebMD has no clue of what's transpiring. But I would imagine there are ways in which perhaps, Lucy, his background in medicine and the fact that he's suddenly gone from being physician Paul to patient Paul must have had some ups and some downs to it. 
Yes, that's right. Just as far as the experience of being doctors, it was sort of the best and worst thing um, for us because you're exactly right. We knew we knew how to use the medical system and we understood what was happening and we knew the prognosis, which is, you know, really painful but helpful at the same time. It helped us make decisions like whether or not to have a baby. And then I, as his caregiver, knew all the medications and how to use them and what the side effects were. I mean, there were a lot of stresses that many families have that our knowledge helped us um, get around, which I'm really grateful for. And then another thing I'm really grateful for is the other thing you just asked about, which is switching from the experience of being a doctor to the experience of being a patient, being on the other side of that relationship. So for both of us as doctors, um, it gave me such a depth of understanding of the degree to which, even if you have the knowledge, um, the the um, existential and um, uh, experiential and care and empathy that all the all that stuff that your doctor provides you, we were so hungry for it, and it just helped really enrich my understanding of how deep and supportive that relationship can be. Um, if you're lucky, it was um, Paul's dependence on his doctor was much more than I would have expected from a young male neurosurgeon, you know, but he, he really was emotionally dependent on his doctor in a way that I thought was really profound and interesting to see. And it helped shape my own, own practice as a doctor and understanding of that relationship. Dr. Lucy Kalanithi with us today. We're talking about a new book just newly released by Random House called When Breath Becomes Air. It is a New York Times bestseller written by her husband, Dr. Paul Kalanithi, and we're talking about their experiences following the diagnosis at the age of 36 of stage 4 lung cancer. We'll take a brief time out and come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Craig Roberts along with a very special guest today. She is Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. Her husband, Paul, the author of a new book called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. This is a New York Times best-selling book that details the observations and life experiences and in many ways, I think, sets down a legacy by her husband, Dr. Paul Kalanithi, as he was diagnosed with stage four terminal lung cancer at the very young age of 36 and, and, and very new into his career as a physician. Let's talk about his decision to start journaling and, and begin compiling what eventually would become When Breath Becomes Air. You mentioned about his, his background and love for literature. Was this one of those bucket list types of things, Lucy, where he, he had a book in him that had to come out, or was there, was there more to it than this? Was it in part maybe coping with the day-to-day experience of going through chemotherapy and all that it tends to a stage four um, cancer diagnosis, along with wanting to, I would imagine, leave a legacy behind for you and eventually your daughter? Um, yes, exactly. All of those things. It's wild because if you'd asked him when he was a teenager what he'd be when he'd grow up, he definitely would have said, I'm going to be a writer. And then he surprised himself by going into medicine. He studied literature and philosophy and then decided to come into medicine because he was so interested in the question of what makes us human and how do we make sense of building meaning in our lives despite the fact that we will all die. And so he was trying to get at that big question by um, studying literature and then ultimately becoming a neurosurgeon and thinking about neuroscience. Um, and uh, then the writing of the book, it's, it was so fortuitous and amazing the way it happened. He 
became, he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer when he was 36, just starting his neurosurgical career. And then he wrote a little essay called How Long Have I Got Left that um, he sent it to a friend for comments. And it was almost like a little journal essay about coping with uncertainty and making sense of, um, you know, how I, I know I'm dying, but even still, I don't know how much time I have left. And um, his friend forwarded it straight to the op-ed desk at the New York Times. And they published it almost verbatim. And Paul had this huge response from it where for a while he was getting an email a minute, um, just a real um, positive experience hearing from doctors and patients. And ultimately, quickly from that essay came a book deal. Mm. Um, uh, and then it was sort of a, it was a journal like you described. He was writing the manuscript to help him cope in real time. Very intimate. He wrote down things that were more intimate than he could say out loud to me. So me reading the manuscript as he was writing, it was actually a really powerful part of what was happening in our marriage as he was ill. And then he knew that it would be a legacy for our daughter. And his real purpose was um, not just a journal or a private document, but um, really helping bring the reader into what it feels like to face mortality um, in a very personal way. And at the same time, he's reflecting back on philosophy and literature and his experiences in medicine. So sort of a mix of his whole... Um, everything he'd learned to that point, and he's trying to he's trying to give it as a gift or something to share. What's amazing about this is is you get the sense, perhaps, that he's working through a lot of the big questions that, quite frankly, all of us will eventually have to work through or at least be confronted by. It, it, it might be uh, debatable as to how many people work through it. I, I, I think that perhaps some people work their way through the entirety of life, and, and as they begin to face uh, the, the end chapter, don't really think through, uh, has my life been meaningful, and, 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 and how do we make uh, a sense of, of, of meaning and purpose in life, even in the face of things that we cannot control and in some cases are, are very unwelcome, at least early on, and that is death, like in the case of, of Paul, who was facing his mortality at an age probably uh, a third of what is, is normal for most people these days based on longevity tables. And then, too, to leave that that experience, those observations, those feelings behind in a, in a permanent document that not only would share his own insights into this question of what does all of this mean, but then, too, to leave that behind as a gift for you and for your daughter. As you read through the journal in preparation for bringing this book to publication, were there things that surprised you? Um. Uh, kind of. So I, as I mentioned, he was writing it, um, sort of a central piece of the last year of his life was the experience of writing the book. And, and I was really helping, you know, we timed his um, chemo around it and we adjusted his medication so he could concentrate or sit for long periods of time. You know, the, the process of um, being ill with cancer, as you know, is, um, isn't easy. And he's trying to write during that. And so as he was writing, I was reading, you know, what was coming out on the page about his experience. And there are a couple of different things, like he wrote about a rocky patch we went through in our marriage. He writes about that right at the beginning of the book. And then um, he writes about how we wrestled with the decision of whether we should have a baby despite his illness. And, um, you know, he was writing about these really intimate things. And I thought, you know, should I, should I ask him to tone it down or take them out or whatever? And then I was like, you know, if I were a reader, those are the parts I would love. I would love the parts that were real and authentic. And the book is quite intimate and detailed and raw. Um, and I think that's partly why people are responding to it, sort of unflinching and really honest. And um, and it's his 
story. I, I wasn't going to ask him to change his story. So it did surprise me how um, uh, sort of intimate, the types of intimate things he shared. But I actually think that was a really wise decision. It turned out to be really positive, including for me. Um, you know, it, it is helping me have intimate conversations with other people based on what Paul shared about our experience. Well, in so many ways, it is a gift that many people, quite frankly, Lucy, will never experience. Uh, They will meet, fall in love, build a family, have a relationship, spend a lifetime together, and then once death takes one of the two uh, individuals in that marriage relationship, there are a lot of memories left behind. There are some wonderful photographs, but to have a permanent document uh, that details the thought process and observations and life experiences that that can go on even to serve as a guide for your daughter in years to come is is an incredibly rare and I think precious gift. And the other thing too that you talk about in the um, um, the epilogue to this new book, which again for listeners is When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House, uh, written by Dr. Paul Catalani. Uh, for you in in this process, you talk about much of what you've learned in terms of going through grief, what that means, how that nobody can really dictate to you how to grieve or what that process looks like or the timetable. And the other thing that you said that, that really struck me, you talk about this notion and you at one point quote C.S. Lewis, that death in and of itself in a relationship is not the end. And so often a lot of people say, well, the, now that my husband is gone, my wife is gone, it's over. And it, the reality is it's not, it's not the end. It's just a different phase of love. Uh, elaborate on that. Oh, I love that quote so much. He, um, C.S. Lewis writes that in um, A Grief Observed, and he, he says exactly that. Bereavement is not the truncation of married love, but one of its regular phases. And that I just gasped as I read it because I felt that way. I felt after Paul died, I still love him just the same way I loved him. Even if I get remarried in the future, I will still love Paul forever. You know, he's still, um, you know, part of my family and my life experience. And then the um, the process of shepherding his manuscript for the book When Breath Becomes Air into the real book, and then helping Random House choose the cover and writing the epilogue about how Paul died and reflecting on Paul, those experiences feel they literally make me feel as if Paul and I are still a team, um, still working on this book, and you know, like I'm still doing something to help Paul live out his life. It's really interesting. It's um, I knew I would feel sad and anxious after he died, and I have, but I didn't realize that those same feelings of love and um, commitment would continue just the same, and they have. I wrote a I wrote an essay in the New York Times called "My Marriage Didn't End When I Became a Widow," and it's about it's about that exact idea, and I think. I've had a lot of people tell me that they can relate to that idea about grief. Your your young daughter was too young to, to really perhaps remember much about her father, but as she grows older and goes from being a little girl into a young lady, uh, this this is a book that can serve and guide her well, isn't it? I hope so. It's really my prized possession, and I'm, I'm, I can't wait until she can read it. Um, the takeaway... For for listeners, and we've talked about a lot of the topics here today, Lucy, uh, gone from the shock of a terminal diagnosis at a young age to what it means in terms of the impact on a relationship to trying to think through uh, suddenly facing these questions of eternity at a very early age or a young age, and then 
wrestling with the questions of meaning of life and the legacy that we would hope to leave behind, the impact of our of our presence, so to speak, having been here on Earth. In, in terms of the big takeaway, if there's any one thing that you would hope the readers can really extract from Paul's book, what would it be? You know, the book, he's writing it, as you know, from the perspective of a neurosurgeon and a lover of literature and a terminally ill man, and he's talking about facing mortality. And the thing he wanted to share is, you know, as, you, as you're dying and as you're living, um, how do you wrestle with your own values and then create a life that's built around those values and that's truly meaningful? Um, uh, you know, and it's, <laughs> I keep being afraid, you know, people will ask me, so what, so what is the meaning of life? And what does when rescue comes there say about that? And I think partly it's the struggle to find meaning that is the meaning. Um, and that's, sort of what he gets deep into. Those are ultimately questions, of course, that we can only answer for ourselves. But I I think what's remarkable about this book and both his approach and the effort that you've made in in making his dream as a published author uh, come to fruition and leaving that legacy behind, not just for yourself and your daughter, but for all of us. And that is to also paint a picture. We we often hear, especially at at, uh, eulogies, about how well somebody lived and what a class act that they were in life. And yet it is rare that we get a glimpse into uh, the process of how well somebody can die and what it means to to die with grace and and what that picture looks like that's a part of life that that you know we don't understand a lot about we spend uh, oftentimes a lot of energy in trying to avoid that and yet learning how to to make the the final moments of life have as much significance and value and leave behind as much legacy at the end as we do throughout the years on Earth, I think is so incredibly important and what makes this particular book so special and so unique. The book, again, is called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. It is the story of Dr. Paul Cathalani, and we appreciate, uh, Dr. Lucy, you spending some time with us today to share your story. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I'll remind listeners, the book is available through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get it on the website for Dr. Paul Cathalani. Let me spell the name for you. It's Paul, P-A-U-L-K-A-L-A-N-I-T-H-I. And if you just Google When Breath Becomes Air, you'll be able to find the website. Our thanks again to Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to spend some time in this portion of the program talking about power. Now, at least you think we're going to dive into a bit of a thesis on how to reduce your energy bills and (laughs) save money. Uh, No, not quite that kind of power, but power nevertheless, a topic that while most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about in a direct fashion, we nevertheless are engaged in it. Some of us exercise it. Others have a thirst or a yearning for it. It's something that we think about at certain levels, and yet we have this very odd relationship with power. We know certainly that the old adage, what is it, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what of our relationship to this topic of power from a spiritual standpoint? My next guest tonight has taken some time to dive deeper into this very equation, and he details his findings and really kind of kind of pulling back, so to speak, the, the layers of the onion 
to help us better understand our relationship to power inside the pages of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. It is written by author, executive editor of Christianity Today, Andy Crouch. And Andy, thanks so much for being on the program with us. Thank you, Craig. I'm delighted to be here. Fascinating topic. It's something that, as I say, well, we probably don't get up every day and think specifically about this topic. It's one that we're we're tied into on a day by day basis, and a lot of us find ourselves even in this in this struggle for or against power of one sort or another, uh, literally daily, don't we? It's part of being a human being. I think it's actually part of being a living. Any living creature uh, has some kind of power because power in the most basic sense, is just the ability to make a difference in the world, to make some kind of change in the world. And if you're alive, you're doing that one way or another. But as human beings, we have much more complex kinds of power than other creatures do, other parts of creation do. And that's ultimately because we're, we're made in the image of God in, in a way that other creatures aren't. And I think that's why every human being, um, you know, you mentioned a yearning for power. Every human being kind of wants room to, to make something of value and worth. But then also this has become very distorted uh, by our own sin and the ways that we've uh, distanced ourselves from God. Indeed, we see uh, laid out literally from the Garden of Eden uh, the capacity of power to either do good or do evil, and then it seems as if it's been a, a history-long, lifelong struggle for mankind in trying to deal with well, what exactly is our relationship to power? What do we do with it? Why do we yearn for it? How do we corrupt it? How do we drive it in the right direction so that it can, in fact, do more good than it does evil? You know, when you, when you lay it out like that, you realize, in a way, the whole story of Scripture is a story about power. It's about the original power that human beings were meant to have. They're made in the image of God. They're the climax of creation in Genesis 1. And they're given dominion. You know, that's a power word over the whole creation. These very frail, vulnerable creatures, just like you and me, are, are told that they're to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and, you know, all this stuff that pre-technological humanity couldn't directly control. And yet they're given this vision that they're there to represent the Creator in the midst of creation. But then something goes very wrong, and I think you'd sum it up by saying they try to uh, declare, depend, uh, declare independence from God. They try to separate themselves from God and use their power for themselves. And the power that we were meant to have, which was meant to be the, for the flourishing of the whole world, ends up being kind of turned in on our own uh, benefit, our own self-protection. And then the question becomes, how is God going to intervene to set this story right, and that in many ways is, is the story of the rest of the Bible. And it really is amazing, as you point out. I mean, literally, in the opening chapter of Genesis, we see the first action of God, a display of His power, <laughs> as He engages in His creative power to bring about planet Earth. Then we see, later on, once mankind is about the scene, uh, first an account of the power struggle between Lucifer and God himself, right. and then later on, man's power struggle as we engage in this battle in the Garden of Eden. And it seems as if this this issue of kind of a, a power struggle with God or against God has kind of been a component from day one, hasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And this was actually true even in the world where the, where the book of Genesis was first written down, because the other creation stories that were told by the, the gods of Babylon or the, you know, the religion of Babylon all said that the world began with a conflict. Uh, they were all conflict stories. 
The amazing thing about Genesis 1 is it does not have, it doesn't begin with conflict. The conflict comes in later, and the, the root conviction of Genesis 1 is that when God uses his creative power, it brings only abundance. It's not kind of a zero-sum game where if I win, you lose, or if you win, I lose. Instead, you get more and more flourishing. Uh, what happens, though, when the man and the woman are tempted, <laughs> and when they get into that, and when that sets in motion, really, history as we know it, is power becomes about conflict, and it becomes about competition. It's no longer about mutual flourishing, where we actually both could win. It's about one of us is going to, to dominate uh, the other, or one force is going to dominate the other. And we start to believe that that's the realest form of power, that the, the most real power is the power that can make you do something you don't want to do, rather than the power that can call into being a world or new kinds of creativity, new kinds of culture uh, that actually benefits everyone. So what's fascinating about this, then, is we really get pulled into this topic, Andy, of power in relationship to whether it's being used for uh, malevolent purposes or, on the other hand, malevolent purposes, Mm -hmm. that impacts Every relationship that we have, I mean, certainly with God, I mean, sin is what better description of the power struggle uh, that exists between mankind and God uh, than to see sin and and how that power fight's going on. And not just, though, on the vertical plane, but even on the horizontal plane in our relationships. I mean, think of the young teenager who's rebelling against his parents, and all of a sudden there's this power struggle that we see that's being displayed there. Even the friction between husband and wife and relationships at that level oftentimes are are demonstrative of this fight over power. They really are about power, and uh, and I think that's because in many ways it's the most it's the most fundamental thing we're given to work with as human beings, either for good or for bad. Um, and so you do find it in every relationship, actually, every workplace, every church, every family, and and most of us, realistically, the place where most of us have the most power is in our family relationships, especially if we're parents. But even even as, as those of us who are parents know, children have tremendous power in their relationship with their parents. Mm-hmm. And And of course, that's why so much of the Bible story is the story of families that either get it somewhat right, never entirely right, uh, and sometimes get it terribly wrong. Um, and, you know, again, we often think, you know, when we think of power, I think we often think of, you know, politics or perhaps military power, and those are very real. But when I started to dive into this issue, I realized actually all of us confront these issues every single day. I confront it in my own home, not just when I'm out doing allegedly powerful things, but even in choosing how I relate to my wife and my children, my neighbors. It happens at every scale of human society. Well, even deeper than that, perhaps, Andy, is that the power struggle that goes on internally. I mean, look, for example, Paul talked about, you know, wow. I, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know to do good, and yet I do what not. Daily I have to die unto the flesh. Don't we see demonstrated there, in that sense, an internal power struggle going on? Do we yield to God? Do we yield to the devil? Who's going to kind of get control here? I think that's an amazing observation. And what it always, I think, uh, for many people, the real question in life is not actually, does God exist? I think most people 
know God exists. And Paul says even those who don't believe that sort of suppress the truth. They still know the truth. But the real question is, is God good? <laughs> and, and especially if I serve God, well, does that mean I have to give up things I want? Does that mean I have to give up what's good? And the, the root of, of every abuse of power is the idea that, that we can't both get something good. Either I and God, I can't, God can't get what's you know, good for God and good for me, or you and I, if we get locked in a power struggle, we start to believe either I win or you win. And when that enters into our relationship with God, we've basically believed the very thing the serpent says in Genesis uh, 3, which is God's actually jealous of his power, and he doesn't want you to have all of it, so you better eat that fruit so that you'll have what God doesn't want you to have. And that's the fundamental lie, that God wants you to have something that would actually be good for you, but that God doesn't want you to have. And that's that's an amazing point that you make there, because there is an aspect of this power that we define in the flesh. And I mean, we just bring up the topic. We think of power. It's the energy to drive to do something, to accomplish something. And we often think that, well, the greatest display of power is when we're flexing our muscles to use power, failing perhaps to recognize that somehow there's, there's another aspect that can show how powerful we can be that in the flesh might seem to be weak, but in the spiritual realm is in fact very powerful. We'll talk a bit about that too as we continue our conversation today. Andy Crouch on the line with us today. He, executive editor of Christianity Today and the author of a new book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dissecting today in this edition of Lifeline all of the power struggles that we see at so many levels within our relationships, within our history, uh, really going back to the beginning of time tonight with Andy Crouch. Um, He, of course, does not go quite back to the beginning of time, but he's been around for a while, enough to be able to be executive editor of Christianity Today, a prolific writer. One of his other best-selling books includes Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. We're talking today, though, about his latest book, newly published by University Press, called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Interesting, Andy, when we talk about the ways in which sometimes power gets distorted, we always have that sense that power is about getting my way. And if I just get my way, I'm somebody that's very powerful. And yet sometimes surrendering parts of ourselves, while perceived perhaps in the flesh to be weakness, actually can be quite powerful, can't it? Yes, and, uh, you know, it's amazing how often, how much time you spend in the first chapter of Genesis when you start thinking about this, because, of course, the first chapter of Genesis begins with God, the Creator, who we know as Christians is three persons, three in one, and there's that interesting moment in Genesis 1 where God actually says, let us make humankind. And that uh, Creator is already complete. He has his way, if you want to put it that way, already, without making the world. And yet this God desires to bring into being a world that's going to have all of these other creatures, starting with very simple creatures uh, in the first days of creation, as as the story is told, but then culminating in these creatures who are made in his image. He actually wants partners. And so when we think about the highest form of power, I think we do often think, boy, if I really had power, I would just say, you know, do it, and people would do it. (laughs) They would basically be little 
uh, robots obeying my commands. Um, and this is what we think it would be like to be God, to be able to just move things around and move uh, persons around without regard to what they want. But it seems like the deeper form of power is actually to call into being other other persons who can actually collaborate with you, because that's what God essentially invites these creatures made in his image to do, to be his representatives in the midst of creation. So, you know, we really have to get away from this idea that the, the realist form of power is control or command, and realize that actually the realist form of power is creation and collaboration. That's when you have the most powers, when other people actually take up their own creative abilities. And, and that understanding, that perspective is, is critically important, isn't it? Because if we're going to redeem power, then there has to be something worthy of being <laughs> redemptive there. And so often, as I say, I think, Andy, a lot of us mistake power for meaning that means you get to do whatever you want to do in order to the other people around to do your bidding, which, as we're learning, is absolutely not the case at all. So then yeah. at the end of the day, it's understanding that perspective that allows us to see the good of power and how this can be then redeemed for God's purposes. That was one of the big breakthroughs for me, was when I realized we often talk about power as if it's the same thing as dominance or domination. And actually, that domination is a, is a very weak form of power. If all I have over you is the ability to make you do things that you don't want to do, I actually have very little real power. And it's interesting you mentioned that. I remember thinking back to a lot of the media reports, for example, over Ariel Castro. This is that guy there in Cleveland that kidnapped Amanda oh, Berry and, and wow. two other girls. Uh, and you would read the story on the surface and see the way which he had held these girls in, in the basement of this house with uh, wire ties around their wrists and chains and everything else. And you think, well, there's demonstrative of this guy being so powerful, wielding all this power over these girls. And yet the deeper you get into the psyche and the story, oh, you know. begin to realize, no, this guy's not powerful at all. In fact, he's pretty powerless. Yes. And, the, and you know, Paul uh, will use the language of impri imprisoned or slave. You know, a slave especially in the ancient world, with someone who had absolutely no power of their own, completely dependent on their master. And Paul says, if we really get, gave into that idea of domination, if we got what we think we want, which Ariel Castro did kind of get for a time, what he thought he wanted, the ability to dominate, we actually become slaves uh, of sin. We, we don't end up being masters. And that's why the serpent's promise in the garden is so... Um, appealing and so deceptive, because actually once the man and woman get what they want, what we want, to be like God without having to be in relationship with God, they actually find that they don't have what they wanted at all. Um, and that's what where domination leads. It, it actually, strangely enough, leads to the the one who would be master ends up being becoming completely so mastered by it. Really, Satan is in the process of distorting power then uh, from the very beginning and all the time. Yeah. I mean, think for example about Jesus there during the forty days in the wilderness uh -huh. and the number of times that he was tempted. And and I always read those passages and thought to myself, Satan, you're an idiot. I mean, to begin with, you're going to say that you're going to offer. Very God himself here, if you just bow down and worship me, I give you all of the kingdoms of the earth and so on and so forth. And I always thought to myself, how can you give God what he already has? <laughs> it's all his to begin with. He created it all. So how can you give him what he already has? 
Yes, but, you know, in a way, Jesus is the only human being who has heard those temptations and not at some level given in. Mm. Now, not all of us uh, have heard the promise of every single kingdom, but all of us have that kind of twinge of an idea that we're made for more than we have. And, and that's true. Uh, we, you know, we're made in the image of God. We're made for much more than we currently experience. But Satan insinuates this idea that there's a shortcut to it, that it involves domination, that it involves kind of cheating God of what God, only God can give. And Jesus is the only human being who's ever realized that's actually not, uh, that bargain will not actually work out. It's actually a lie. And if, if he went through with it, he would find that Satan had mastered him. And instead, he came out of that temptation able to, to say no. Bring us back to this full circle of the issue of um, bringing power back into the balance. First, to understand mm-hmm. that it, it, it needs to first and foremost be used for the capacity to do good. And we see, when we really mentioned this even from the very get-go, as we see this in Scripture, the very first acts of God are cre- is the demonstration of creative power. Yeah, so I think one question to ask is, you know, with whatever power I have today, you know, you mentioned I have a, I have a title, I'm executive editor of a magazine called Christianity Today. Well, that's a position of power. So the question is, I think there's a couple questions. One is, who am I using that power for? And if the answer is I'm using it mostly for my own benefit to, uh, you know, increase my own notoriety or fame or my own wealth or, you know, any number of things, then it's, I'm probably going to end up using other people for my ends. But it might be possible to use even you know, positions like that actually for others flourishing. And I think in the case of people who, say, own a business, so that it could be a small business or have a position like I do where you are in charge of some people, you, you actually are given power not for your own flourishing but for their flourishing. So one of the most important questions we can ask is, who is flourishing because I have power? (laughs) And if the answer is me and mine, that isn't very much like the true God. But if the answer is the people who actually are under my care are flourishing, they're becoming more of what they're meant to be, they're expressing their own power, they're getting to do things they, they wouldn't have gotten to do otherwise, then I think we're on the path to a much better use of power. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Andy Crouch is with us. He's the author of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Now, when we come back after a quick timeout, we're going to go deeper into this topic, uh, how we can go about utilizing the creative and malevolent power that God has given to all of us um, in order to use it for his glory, to go deeper in our relationships, not just with God on the uh, the vertical plane, but with others on the horizontal plane as well, as Andy just referred to. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation right after this. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.